thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. We took a week off, but we're back. This is our podcast about the IMDb's top 250 movies as voted by their users. I am your host, OG Lens Flare, Tyler Hannon. With me as always, the valiant horse, Kayla St. Ange. Hi. And joining us for the first time, our good friend, Ink Rain Sean Loffery. Hello. Sean, we've been waiting for like years to get you on this podcast that's existed <laughs> for two months. How are you? Um, I'm blessed. How's Thank it, you. How's it feel? It feels, um, it's a little scary, but you know, I think I'm ready. That's good. That's good. So you're more prepared than us. All right. <laughs> we are just shaking in fear always, every time we record. Oh, so. Sean asked if we want to do video, and I'm like, I can't. I can't. You'll see me just like trembling. I'm hiding behind a counter right now. <laughs> I'm actually sipping cider. Which is a no-go on podcast, what we do in our So today, today is a good day because it actually feels like fall outside, and that makes me a very happy person. So This is true. It's good old Midwest Michigan weather. Michigan, which is better than, I don't know, any state that is directly south of it. <laughs> it's beautiful in Ohio, too. It's 65, sun shining, you know, can't complain. Beautiful in Ohio is an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. <laughs> but fair. Mean but fair. I mean, we could talk weather. Let's have a little wet, nah, little weather talk. <laughs> Hold on, my no. girl. I'll see if she can talk about it. I mean, honestly, I'm just kind of tired of talking about movies on this. Like, I know it's a movie <laughs> podcast, but I'm just over them. And I really just want to get into the important things. <laughs> like, small talk about the weather. Yes. I have, over the last, I don't know, month or two, I've bizarrely made somewhat friends with all, of, like, the local newscasters and meteorologists. Um, and we just like tweet back and forth. And so if anybody wants to do that, I think they should, because it's really fun. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I gotta say, maybe the newscasters, how many people actually reply to newscasters on Twitter? They might be lonely. That's, that's kind of what started it. Uh, I was like, eh, I'll give the social media people some, you know, whatever intern is running the local news channels, social media, some entertainment. Um, and then it kind of just morphed into this beast where like the power went out at one of the stations last night. So I was like, making sure that they were okay and it's, it's, it's kind of turned into this piece that i can't contain anymore are you but their guardian angel <laughs> it's my destiny on this earth he makes the interns live or interns lives their days much more exciting i'm sure i'm sure yeah they're so used to sending out these tweets about like wind into the empty void with... right having been in charge of social media for like uh like a business yeah it's actually really fun when you get to reply to people so I can see that. It's like an echo chamber that doesn't echo. Yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. Well, sadly, this is a movie podcast, so we should talk about the movies instead of that. Fine. Sean, have you watched anything good recently? Yeah, I've been sort of re-watching the the filmographies of a couple people uh, slowly and kind of at the same time. I caught part of Goodfellas, and that made me want to watch a bunch of Scorsese stuff. So, um, if anybody hasn't seen any of any like super old Scorsese, like Mean Streets, uh, I had a great time watching that. It's super kind of dirty, and uh, but you can see how things evolved into the way he tells stories now. So that's um, awesome. And then that led me to De Niro's A Bronx Tale is the first movie he directed, and I think he has a couple others that he's directed. And it's it kind of cut from the same cloth, but uh, those uh, those have been kind of uh, what's been in rotation lately for me. Um, we'll be getting to a lot of that old Scorsese because he has roughly 
300 movies on our, the IMDb top 250. <laughs> on the top 250, there's yeah. And 75% of them star Robert De Niro, so we will get there. <laughs> They're all crime dramas. It's so <laughs> they weird. They are all crime so dramas. So much crime drama. I know. It's weird how, after being in all those crime dramas, Robert De Niro just keeps doing crime dramas. It's all he knows. Not really. He's kind of like the quirky grandpa now in a bunch of movies. This is true. Me in fact, I think he's literally playing in a movie. It's called like Dirty Grandpa or something. <laughs> he's also in The Intern, a heartwarming tale about a senior getting back to work and his young millennial boss learning how to deal with him. Okay, to be fair, we saw the trailer for that and both admitted we would probably watch that. <sighs> so Wayne, You didn't have to. <laughs> You're saying you can't trash something that you said you would probably watch. It's not fair. I can if nobody knows I said it. I know you said it. I was there. That was when we saw Pitch Perfect 2, and then we became away completely not, miserable. Let's please, I don't wanna, I'm not ready to... Like, I can trash Jurassic World all day, and yeah. freely do, gladly. I'm not ready to to talk about the disappointment of Pitch Perfect 2 yet. So We're still healing. Still healing. Uh, Kayla, what did you watch this week? Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me introduce this properly. Uh, so Kayla, uh, let's get to uh, this week's Chris Evans corner. The uh, Chris Evans corner, <laughs> our weekly segment on our patron saint, Chris Evans, America's best leading man, and winner of Kayla's award for pectorals that just defy. They don't quit. <laughs> Leave her literally speechless. That's what I was going. All right. For, okay. So. I meant to actually talk about real things this week, but then the greatest news in the world happened, and I found out that Chris Evans basically was like, hey, remember when I said that I wanted to quit Marvel? That was dumb. I don't want to do that. He literally called himself a dipshit, and it's like the cutest interview ever, but that is neither My here nor there. God. Uh, so <laughs> I got this news. I was literally, I was sitting in a tattoo shop, like waiting, I was doing a consultation, and I was literally like, I was like, almost like screaming like in real life it was like i was like physically restraining myself (laughs) from screaming (laughs) because i was so excited were you i am not i am not ashamed did you enjoy (laughs) so in celebration of this news tyler enabled me to do this by renting when no i bought it actually i went and bought winter soldier from the place where we were (laughs) <laughs> and uh no, you did you now you bought it from the place we were yeah so i we bought it and we watched it and then um interestingly enough this week i went out with my co-workers from said place and i drank alcohol and was Sinner. not able Sinner. to go home because of that so we stayed at my co-worker's house and we found out that Co-worker Sydney had never seen Captain America, and so my other co-worker Adam was like, this is horrible, and Adam and I were both just like, Wah! so at 2.30 in the morning, we put on Winter Soldier again, <laughs> like three days after I'd watched it, but I fell asleep because I was drunk, so I only watched it one and a half times. Sadly. That's so sad for you. <laughs> also, Tyler and I later watched We Are Still Here which is like a scary movie. Yes. And it was pretty it was pretty good. It left me with some questions at the end. Like I feel like there was a lot there was a lot of build up and not like quite enough payoff. But then I was like mortified because I tweeted about that <laughs> and the fucking guy that made the movie like saw it and he replied replies, to me. He replies and to every tweet. And I was like, tweet. "Oh, like I didn't want to hurt his feelings." And Tyler was like, "You said a much nicer thing than lots of people said." And I was just like, "No, I still feel terrible." Like, she was basically ah. like, "I liked it, but I didn't love it." And she was mortified by that. 
Like, we don't want people to see these things. Like, <laughs> you forget people can see things on Twitter. Yeah, we also kind of watched the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and by yeah, that I mean Tyler. Sell me out. Tyler everywhere? fell asleep halfway through. What? Did we had get... already watched like three movies that day. To That's be fair. true. That was a pretty. That was a pretty movie filled day. We also stopped a movie halfway through to do some other shenanigans. Where what was that? That was when we recorded my, the dramatic reading. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. On my computer, there exists a dramatic, possibly alcohol-affected reading of Kayla's 14-year-old... The, the sci-fi novel sci-fi that I wrote at age 14. Novel. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. You don't have to ask. We, When we were drunk, we debated putting that up as a bonus episode and then decided that we were too ashamed to do that. So we didn't do that. <laughs> I like having careers. Yeah. Sean, maybe we'll send that to you, because I feel like if anybody would appreciate that, you would. <laughs> I would love nothing more than to listen to that. <laughs> it's basically me being like, okay, okay, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> like, that's pretty much the whole recording. But yeah, so, that's what I watched. Kyle, I know you're out there groaning somewhere, but don't worry. I'll find a way to fit this in again next week. Kyle's going to be on the podcast next week. and <laughs> Literally just, just will like shout me down and well, not let me mention Chris Evans' name. <laughs> it's a good thing for a peek behind the curtain that we record these so far in advance. Because he'll only have had about 24 hours to listen to this episode. And if I just tell him, maybe if you listen to it on Sunday, we can you just listen to it on Sunday after we record so you won't know. He'll have no idea. Our shame. But yeah, so uh, Tyler, what, are, shame. what have you watched this week? Well, as you mentioned, we watched We Are Still Here. I had been meaning to watch that for months. I've tweeted about meaning to watch it and had the director be like, hope you enjoy it. And Again, I, please. Like, wow. Wha- <laughs> he's being on social media. I know. Media, he's really nice. Better. I just felt bad. <laughs> I enjoyed it a little more than you did. It is really cool. There is a, It is only 80-some minutes, but it really amps up like it starts off you think it's going to be more of a slow burn kind of haunted house thriller and then it quickly escalates into some of the most gory madness it is i was just like so confused because i was like what is happening right now you think you you think it's going to be like a spooky haunted house thriller and all of a sudden they're fists bursting through chests and charred people and everyone dying it's great i mean i guess that's a little bit getting into what happens in the movie, but it's a horror movie. Know. So yeah, like someone's like, gonna die. It's pretty sweet. I definitely <laughs> recommend checking it out. You yeah, can... I wouldn't say that you shouldn't watch it. I just like it wasn't the best movie I've ever seen. How dare you? He's gonna tweet at us now. Fuck. <laughs> but that yeah, you and we got it through Voodoo, but it's available through pretty much all the VOD services, I'm pretty sure. We can just I, get Voodoo on my Blu-ray player. <laughs> also, um I, I no longer work at uh, the video store that shall not be named. I quit. I didn't get fired, so don't worry. I'm... I'm done at the end of the month, and it's going to be amazing. And then we can just say the name because it won't matter. <laughs> Do we have to? No. We're getting derailed. I know the and... name. Sean? Sean, no. <laughs> I will hang up this Skype call with such a tap that will reverberate throughout the state. Words are weapons. Skype hang-ups are super effective. Yeah. So, I also saw Mistress America. Uh, we work right next to two art theaters in Ann Arbor, and I saw it at the Michigan Theater. It's the new Noah Baumbach film, this one with Greta Gerwig, also Lola Kirk, the younger sister of Jemima Kirk. Ooh. She was in Gone Girl. I think she was the girlfriend, the young girlfriend, creepy young girlfriend in Gone Girl. 
Is that her name? Technically, that Lola Kirk. I did not realize that. Well, you looked that up quickly I'm while I, uh, not vamp, but actually talked no, about the movie. No, 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 no. Wait, the. So I. Oh no! I... Okay, she was in Gone Girl, but she was not. Was she not? She wasn't his girlfriend. His girlfriend was the girl that was in the um. His girlfriend was the girl that was in the um. The Blurred Lines video. Yeah, thank you. I forgot how to fucking. Oh, talk. was she really? Rajakowski. Yeah. Oh, who had the? She was the one who talked recently about how the movie ruined her life. And... How Gone Girl did? No, uh, sorry, the video. Oh, okay. Okay, Lola Kirk who was she play in Gone Girl? Greta. This is great, great radio. I think she plays Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> I legitimately don't remember her from this movie, but okay, that's fine. Whatever, moving on. <laughs> Mistress America. <laughs> Mistress America is the latest from Noah Baumbach, this time with his... Uh, his girlfriend uh cohort in the all things romantic and filmic yeah i'm slightly uncomfortable now with that anyways his movies are always better when she is in them i find and everybody else on the internet has found so that is not a daring statement at all uh because greta gerwig is just really really good she's magical she's i'm 100 in love with her (laughs) like lola kirk is also really good in this movie it's basically it starts off as these two kind of bonding and in new york of course because noah bombach but it turns into like this screwball comedy halfway through where it's got suddenly there's a whole cast of characters and it's just these quippy one-liners and the the way the camera follows them and people coming in and out of frame and making quick jokes and it's just really rat-a-tat suddenly and it was not the movie I was expecting, and I greatly enjoyed it. It doesn't all quite fit together, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, really good. I definitely advise checking it out, because Greta Gerwig is magic. I feel like that's, like, always the best part of Noah Baumbach movies is, like, the characters and not yeah. so much, like, the actual story. So, like, the dialogue is usually... I enjoy the dialogue quite a bit, too. Yeah. What do you think of Noah Baumbach, Sean? Uh, I love Noah Baumbach. Uh, I've been a fan for some time. Squid and the Whale is great, and... I like Greenberg, even though I guess you're really not supposed to like it because he's such a horrible character. But uh, but Greta Gerwig was great in that. Um, did you see We're Still Young? I did. While we were young, I did. And kind of, I was kind of in the middle of the road on that one. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you that when she is involved, uh, his his uh, the output is is much greater. She's just like. A hurricane. She's incredible. She's yeah. a force of nature. I will never forget the first time I saw her. It was uh, the House of the Devil. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, I love the House of the Devil. Oh man, it's so good. It's probably I one of my favorite horror was... movies of the last thirty years. Yeah, Who's she's um, the friend of the friend of Jocelyn Donahue's character. Oh my god. And uh, I've been meaning to watch that anyway because I've never seen it. So we should. Oh watch. man. I like. So... I know Jocelyn Donahue's name, but the actress I totally love. I forgot was in that movie. Yeah, she she meets an untimely death. Um, no. <laughs> it's a horror movie. Everybody dies. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, a weird uh, girls tie-in to there. You said Lola Kirk is the sister of the girl from Girls, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Lena Dunham's voice is in House of the Devil. That's the worst thing what? I've ever heard. Yeah, isn't that random? <laughs> I love this movie, and I'm re- learning new things about it. Or Yeah, I don't know why I know that, except I'm obsessed with that movie. Why is her voice in that movie? She is uh, like a 911 operator, like a pe- the, pizza, the pizza person or something like that on the phone. 
see, this is one of those things <laughs> where like you only find out like by looking at the IMDb like full cast list or watching them on Twitter. All the people you like know each other. Yeah, it's really strange. Well, and AJ Bowen is in it as well, who is in that little clique of directors and writers. Or like you see like Joe Swanberg and Greta Gerwig got her start with Joe Swanberg. So that's what I was just gonna say. You see Joe Swanberg in all these horror movies too. Although, like if you think about, it, that's kind of how like like real life is. Like for instance, okay, like we're all three of us talking right now because. I know you, you know Sean, but Sean also knows like four of my other friends from the internet. And it's like, everybody's Sean's very popular. Everybody, well, I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but everything's like weirdly interconnected. I guess. Yeah, it's great. I love Ty West. He's the best. Wait, what's his, his next movie? His, I will vamp for time while I look it up, but he is one of those directors who's getting bigger and bigger casts as his movies continue to do well. Yeah, the and... next one's going to be nuts. It has, like, Travolta and Ethan Hawke and yeah. Karen Gillan. It's a Western. It's yeah. going to be fucking sweet. I'm so excited. I definitely yeah. want to find the name of it, though. But I, I just look... I, every now and then, I pull it up, and I'm just like, that is so cool. <laughs> not that great. In a valley of violence. Okay, so it's not that, like, Green Inferno movie. No, that's for Eli Roth. Reason, for some reason, I got this Ugh. stuff, and I was like, why are we excited about this? <laughs> no, everybody... People love Eli Roth, and I do not, to put it simply. Not, a, not, not into it. You, you, on a scale of, like... Zero to Chris Evans. <laughs> I mean, Chris Evans throws off any scale, so I don't well, know. Well, he's, he's the very top of the scale. Okay. Like the best that you could ever be as a human being. Well, yeah, but even by that standard, it's like my favorite thing would only be a third of the way up the scale. So it's really hard to. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, I had one other movie. I watched White God on Netflix. It oh. is. Uh, it got a little love. It got a lot of love when it came out last year. I think it's a Danish movie. Basically, a girl was forced to get rid of her dog because that society hates non-purebred dogs. And then the dogs take over. And that's that's it. It's pretty cool, though. It is a beautiful movie. I think it worked pretty well. And actually, the the girl was really good. And I was all I wanted, all I wanted watching that movie was for her to get to hug her dog again because all these terrible things were happening. I'm like, I just want them. I just want them to be together. Who's that? And I won't tell you if it happens or Dang not. Dang it. <laughs> did you see what got Sean? I did. Yeah. I figured you did. Yeah. It's awesome. It, it did the rounds. I think like the festival rounds last year, but it was in uh, my local independent theater uh, a few months ago. Oh, and, awesome. um, yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, I like it a lot. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it just hopped on Netflix last month, and I was immediately all... Well, not immediately, but I got all over that as quickly as I could. <laughs> all right, but that's what we've watched this week. Some really good movies. Kayla offending people. Kayla talking about a person who comes up a lot. But let's talk about the movie we came here to talk about that has nothing to do with a certain Avenger. That movie is Rashomon.
Alright, so Rashomon is a movie. It came out in 1950, a Japanese movie by the legendary Akira Kurosawa. He has several movies on the IMDb 250. This is kind of a fitting one to start because this kind of marked his... This was when it really took off for him, and this is when Japanese film really took off, like was recognized by the world, the international film community. The studio was not super into making the movie. I would try to pronounce it, but I would butcher it. D-A-I-E-I, I believe, is how it's spelled. Sean, do you know how to pronounce it? No idea. Sweet. <laughs> Anyways, they weren't super into making the movie, and it didn't totally hit it with Japanese audiences, but the international community loved it. It won the... Uh, it won the top prize at Venice, the Venice Film Festival. And they did not have the Oscars did not have the Foreign Film Award yet. That didn't come around until 1956. But when this, I think the award ceremony was held in 52 for the movies of 51. You know how things overlap like that. It was awarded the Academy Honor Award. It's it's still around. It's kind of given to movies that don't quite fit to what the Oscars are nominating. And before the film award was introduced. It oftentimes the best foreign film would be given that award, and it got that status. And it actually Rashomon is credited with launching the, or like being the impetus to get the foreign film award. It is considered one of the best movies in film history. It is a landmark film, and part of the reason we all know Akira Kurosawa's name today. Mm-hmm. And then the Rashomon effect is obviously named after Rashomon. And the way the movie is structured, it is about all these witness accounts that differ from each other and contradict each other and kind of make it impossible to know what actually happened. And now that is a common phrase used in even in courts or like something to it describes certain movies. It's in the TV tropes dictionary. If you go to the TV tropes website, that alone would be kind of a signifier of a landmark movie, but also just in the way that it will end up on every list. That is only a piece of the cultural impact that it had on society. Sean, let's, we're going to lead off with you. You own, you, I assume it's the Criterion Collection Blu-ray copy of Rashomon. You're clearly... It, I do, yeah, it is. So tell us about your experience with this movie a little bit. Um, well, so it, it starts with me seeing it for the first time ever on a big screen, I think in 2008. It may have been around the time when the Blu-ray was being released. Uh, there's a really great art center here in Columbus, Ohio, called the Wexner Center for the Arts. I was able to see a 35 millimeter print of it there, and it sort of coincided with me starting to fall in love with film in general, and specifically kind of foreign or uh, I guess a little bit more out of the way than what's being put in front of our faces all day, every day. And so it kind of just changed the way I perceived movies could be made. Obviously, there's been probably a billion copycats of, of it and of the Rashomon effect, uh, like you talked about. Um, but uh, to be able to see that it started all the way back when it did, um, it's just, uh, it really kind of floored me and kind of set me on this path of, of movie nerddom. So it's it's deeply affecting to me. Obviously, it's a difficult story to tell, um, but it's done with a lot of grace, and uh, it's not... It's not easy at times to watch, but it's it kind of moves along quickly, and the story is told. The story is told very beautifully, and cinematography is beautiful. Uh, the lens flares, as you uh, as your name alludes to, 
Um, and the the score is is awesome, and I, I kind of like the contrast between each of the the few distinct sets. It's it's very kind of like a play in a lot of ways, uh, in the way that it's told. Or, or I've seen it related to a silent film as well, because uh, Kurosawa was hugely into those, and, and they're very influential to him. Um, so it's kind of just these set pieces, and he kind of hobbles them together using this non-linear narrative. So it's, um, yeah, so that's kind of what it means to me and, and has continued to mean to me for the last uh, eight years or so, I would say. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful movie. And one of the things, and you mentioned the silent film part, and he very specifically points that out. He loves aesthetic, or, uh, silent film, and he points out he wanted to capture the aesthetic glory of silent filmmaking. Well, and you can tell just in the way that they linger on, like, the facial expressions mm-hmm. and how they all kind of, like, even when they're speaking, it's pretty, like, kind of overwrought. But, yeah, so you can tell just in the way that they're speaking and, like, the way that they're, like, moving around, it's very overwrought and, like, harkens to that. Like, obviously, in silent films, you had to act like that to, like, get the point across, so to speak. You can, And I wonder if that comes in the way that Toshiro Mifune laughs. Just oh. the way that he laughs is See, so great. <laughs> I thought I thought about this later. Okay, so one one thing I do want to say before I get into that is that the thing for me that's always kind of a bummer about watching these old like greatest movie ever like kind of deals is that since like there's obviously like sixty ish years between like when it first came out and now is that like what was revolutionary at the time is kind of just like old hat at this point. It's like when you watch Citizen Kane, like lots of people say that Citizen Kane is super boring, which I don't, I don't think that, but like I can understand that because you're like, like it's kind of, it kind of loses like that, that revolutionary impact as every other movie starts to copy it. And like, I would kill to be able to just like see that without having all of that, like those like preconceived notions in my head. Even though I will say, embarrassingly enough, despite considering myself a pretty big film buff, I until now had never seen a Kurosawa film. And I guess until I started doing research for the podcast, didn't really realize like what a big deal he was. (laughs) So it was pretty cool for me to like get into that and see it. That's why I love doing the research for these movies, because no matter how much you can appreciate uh, what's going on in the movie and have at least some idea of what of why it is so great and why people love it so much because it's unless you're very deeply steeped into film history and what happens where and how these things all relate you're going to miss some of those things and in doing the research i find all these things like the way that he uses light and how he shoots directly into the sun those are things people didn't do before mm-hmm. and the, the, this film kind of blew people's mind like it was a tarantino movie with how it was set up the the flashbacks and the conflicting narratives and all those things and i love that like i i, I mean like i had looked up the movie a little bit before that but i guess i didn't realize like how like framed the story was and i love frame stories like <laughs> i don't know why it's just like i am, i was so excited it is a wonderful construct i'm not sure why but like especially when you can nail it there's just something about it which is why i'm so disappointed when movies like vhs don't work because <sighs> they kind of have that wraparound story with the shorter stories in between but this is a massively done one it's an incredible movie and i i, I loved diving into the research to appreciate more how much it meant to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But, what I really liked about like 
the going back to like the performances and stuff is that you can tell in each person's like different story like which character that they thought like didn't think very highly of because like (laughs) for instance like in one like the woman is really strong and then in the other one she's just like a weeping puddle on the ground and like I just thought it was really interesting like I think that kind of ties in with like uh, the maniacal laughing is that like if you were watching it from the outside like you would probably remember it a little bit more like ridiculous than it actually was and so I feel like that was a really like good subtle effect to have have in every story and like that was like the one like consistent thing throughout is that each story kind of had its own like not necessarily like a villain but like its own clear like blame per like blame person yeah <laughs> fall guys and, i mean that's the way their structure is so you see how each person sees themselves and how they the, the it's kind of a morality tale about how kind of weak and self-centered humans are is that they will make these lies to make themselves look better instead of being interested in the truth (laughs) it's a very dark dark kind of take but we see how each of them sees themselves we always see how they see the other people too and so like the wife the bandit has the wife looking much better than her husband does like Mm -hmm. the husband is just like this weak woman in the samurai's recollection even the bandit treats her worse than the bandit does in either of the other recollections. I was, okay, I just want to throw this out there. So the commoner says that you can't trust the woman's story because women are weak or whatever. So we can't trust the women's story, but we can trust the fucking samurai through a medium. Like, that's legit, sure. Like, uh, like when I saw that, I was like, okay, I know that it's feudal Japan, but seriously, like... Come on. That was, it's not necessarily a part of the narrative that I like because I agree with you, but I like when the, uh, the priest says dead man, don't lie. And then the, uh, the commoner says, so let's hear the dead man story. And so, and then it cuts to a, a lightning bolt in the sky and then it zooms in on this like stone dragon head. And then it zooms in on the dragon head again. Um, I don't really know what the significance of that necessarily is, but I just think it's badass. <laughs> You know, I think it's interesting because he does say that dead men don't lie, but if we're going to go ahead and believe the woodcutter, the dead man definitely lies. <laughs> yeah, right. So, like, what's the motivation in the afterworld? To, like, I guess that's an interesting question to but think about as well. Like, he's what's all the about motivation? his honor. Yeah, I guess. Because, like, if you think about it, like, it's like it's not his, like, okay, it kind of was his wife's fault because in the end she kind of turned out to be a jackass. But, like, before he knew that, like, it's not her fault that the bandit, like, forced himself on her. And he's just like, you're disgusting. Kill yourself. Go away. Like, and it's like, again, I understand that it's feudal Japan. It just seems so ridiculous to me to place the the blame of that on her. And I think maybe that's why in his story he was like, no, like, she left and I then honorably fell upon the dagger. <laughs> that's when we know people are so terrible because even in afterlife he is lying to make himself look better yeah and i think that kind of like again like that duality of man kind of thing is obviously the recurring theme and it's really interesting to examine throughout like all of these completely unreliable narrators i i have two two things to say one on the you're talking about the um how each person kind of sees the other people within their own story differently and the most fascinating portion of that is the thief and his retelling of it is when his kind of own uh, psychosis is is ramped up the most um 
he's he's screaming and jumping up and down and laughing and he's always scratching himself and um uh, when he first approaches the the horse he like slaps a bug off of his neck and for some reason that just sticks out that's always stuck out to me i've seen this a handful noticed, of times yeah i noticed that too i had it in my notes he's always yeah. slapping bugs off himself scratching his beard laughing it's only it's only in his retelling and so i what i've what i've kind of been ruminating on is he's this sort of embodiment of what what is recognized now as like a crazy person (laughs) you know and so i don't know if that's if that started then probably not i mean i guess that was probably in in the silent film era and stuff like that but um you know he he has this these delusions and he has this the screaming and the scratching and he's an alcoholic because he said he sold the he sold the sword for out for liquor so yeah, I, I like that, and I find it kind of bizarre that he sees himself maybe lower than any of the other people retelling the story do. So I think that's kind of, that was kind of an interesting thing about it. And it's kind of like his version of honor is being this like fringe lunatic, like he is the craziest bandit, right. when in reality he's just a weak right. man who's a coward. Right. You know, it's kind of interesting to me also because like he like is like such like his own hype man in a way and he gets like really offended when the the guy that captured him is like you fell off the horse but also like i don't know it's also i I wonder how much of his own story is the true story because like obviously we would say that the woman probably wasn't quite so fierce and like all this other like all the other battle was not quite so 23 yeah okay which by the way by the time we get to the woodcutters version of the story i was just kind of like for like a trained samurai and the greatest <laughs> bandit in the world, this is a pretty like sloppy and like weird fight that's happening right now. And also like all of them just kept falling over. Like that was one thing that really <laughs> stuck out to me is that they all would just like fall over all the time. Like what is going on? And like do you not have like equilibrium or? <laughs> no, he uh, just to share my food I'm like. He had to just take so many. At the end of every day, he's got to just be caked in mud walking yeah. back to the house. This is kind of. Uh, I'm kind of just thinking of this right now as you guys are talking. Do you think that is some some sort of silent film connection? I think so. Yeah, uh, kind of like that. Like of, slap- uh, uh, you know, because that was what Chaplin and, and Buster Keaton and all those guys were doing was just that kind of like slapdash, yeah. like almost humorous right, thing. Right, yeah, right. and. Okay, this is a very specific point that I only noticed the second time I was watching it. So in the, I think it's the uh, the woodcutter's story at the very end, when the woman, the two men are both just like, oh, gross, this woman, I don't want to die for her. And then the woman challenges both of them. And she laughs maniacally the way that the bandit does during his story and after the fact, and I'm like, you know, I don't think he laughed like that at all earlier in his story. And so in my head, I'm just enjoying the thought that in his own in his own buffering of his own crazy image, he actually picked the laugh, that laugh that she did in that moment up from her and then added it to his story in his head and then is doing that same laugh as he's retelling the story later. Like that was not how he actually laughed. She laughed like that, and then he picked it up. And that's just like another level of how these stories are conflicting and affecting each other. Drop the mic. 
<laughs> the mic there. That's, I've never thought of that, but that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because like pretty much all the stories except for hers have this like real like veneer of disgust for her. But in the end, like if that's the case, he picks up like that behavior from her, and like the and he of the three men, he has the most respect for her relative to the others. Yeah, so I think story. it's strange that like secretly maybe they do respect her because in a way she kind of like did in whatever weird feudal Japanese way, take agency of her life to get rid of the husband that she didn't really love. Not like in an orthodox way or even like a good way, but, but in a way she that, did it. <laughs> in a way that at least you had you happy after they were just like, don't mind this woman. Don't pick on the woman. She's just a woman. What does she know? That's mean. Well, and really, if you think about it, she gets away with it because she goes to court and she cries and ostensibly doesn't really face any consequence for it. So they're just like, look at this dumb woman who like lost her virtue and then let her husband get killed. I guess we'll just let her go and like live out her days in shame. I did find it odd that she was somehow in that outfit able to outrun the bandit. <laughs> Who is in, like, a loincloth? Yeah. Well, like, the more I thought about that, the more I felt like she was definitely, like, kind of the evil mastermind and really was, like, kind of the yeah. driving force behind all of the the action. Yeah. She basically used both of these men's desire for her against them. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just, I just want to remark on, because we've talked about how beautiful the cinematography is and just how... Like how it's real, uh, resonant of the silent era and all that. And it really is just so incredible. From when the woodcutter is first walking into the woods in that kind of fantastical like series of scenes oh, where it's just... With the music and just... Even the way the camera moves sometimes, because this was one of the first films that the handheld cameras was used in. When he's walking through, like they start on one side and as he gets closer, it swings out lingering on his face from first from his right and then swings over to his left as he's walking towards the camera and it's just a really cool effect that leads him into that affects that uh colors his walking into the woods it's just so beautifully shot and then the horror of those gnarled hands when he finally finds the body it, that, which is a incredibly striking frame just having those hands just like clenched it was like a horror movie almost in that one moment i thought it was funny also that like and obviously it turns out that his version of that like wasn't true but i just think it's funny like that was his idea of like a good story it's like yes i found him laying in the woods with his hands curled to the sky well that is one thing i enjoyed and the thing that's cool about a movie format is you can add all those things that they obviously are not telling to the judge that are very particular to the their reimagining of the story. So it's not just us getting what they're telling the judge, but what they're imagining in their own heads, convincing themselves happened. And I think that's kind of a cool insight that only a movie can provide that like, so this is based on a story called In the Grove, also a story called Rashomon, but this part is based on a story called In the Grove that uh, kind of had the basic setup, a lot of the same things. It just doesn't have the woodcutter at the end and the baby. But that's something I can't, I don't imagine you get in the story as much is how fleshed out their retellings are. And uh, one, uh, the point going not totally off of that, but talk about the movie as a whole is the way the movie's set up, the way that it's morality tale, this movie is just like an 80 minute long parable or a fable. It, it, it just functions really well in that vein, which kind of gives it more lasting value, too, because it, there's, it has that certain simplicity to it. Yeah. 
And I just want to point that out. I thought that was kind of cool. I think it's funny too how like the priest has like this like strangely idealized version of man. And to me, it almost seems like he's kind of in denial about the reality of things. And then like, and I understand at the end, like the, the woodcutter taking the baby is like the, like, oh, like you're doing this unselfish thing when everyone else is so selfish. But also like that, like after all of that, like you're still going to be like, yes, I believe in humankind again. Thank you. Like, it seems like he just really wants to like stay in this like, idealized world where like bad things don't really happen. There were a handful of quotes that I, that I jotted down kind of based on uh, the general tragedy of man and how uh, the woodcutter was viewing man versus how the priest maybe was. Um, And and I think my favorite one of that was, I believe before the woodcutter story, um, it's, I even heard that the demon living here in Rashomon bled in fear of the ferocity of man. Um, and so that That's is right. an that awesome quote that I think really kind of speaks to... Uh, Foreshadowing? Yeah, exactly. That no matter what this priest may think about what men are capable of or aren't uh, capable of, um, they are capable of killing and lying and raping and... Um, yeah, I thought that was really profound, and I, I really like that quote. I do enjoy how the movie's sense of real evil is not the the murder or the rape or the theft. Its idea of like the sinister evil that pervades all mankind is how they are, how we are each weak and selfish, and how we will just do anything really to kind of make ourselves look better or to or less wrong like even if it's like doing wrong or whatever we will lie about making ourselves sound worse because in a way it benefits our honor or our reputation or something like that yeah well you want to preserve like the good image that you have yeah for the most part which by the way i just thought of my recommendation and i'm super excited (laughs) (laughs) we did it (laughs) but yeah i think that I mean, obviously, lots of movies have explored, like, the selfishness of humankind, but it almost, like, is nice to have this, like, kind of over-the-top, like, caricature version of it presented in each of these stories because, like, it, it almost makes you, like, take, like, a hard look at, like, what you are willing to, like, dumb things that we lie about, like, all the time or, like, just, like, dumb little stuff that you do to make yourself look better at your job, like, even though, like, for instance, like, at the video store like i'll do like six inventories but they'll be like the little two-page inventories so like it looks like i'm doing a lot and being <laughs> but i'm really just picking all the easiest ones for myself <laughs> so, just like, got real. so like well like that kind of thing so like and that's like a that's like not even like a, a super great example but like it's it, it, it like what it was like it makes you like really like think about yourself and like your motivations for doing things and that kind of thing one one of the questions I wanted to bring up and, and see what you guys thought was the the woman notes at the end of her story that she tries many different ways to kill herself out of, I'm assuming, out of some sort of shame. Yeah. Um, do you think that is her trying to, to make herself out to be something different than what she is? Or do you think that's reality or um, – I thought that was fabrication because of like the honor code, the kind right. of honor that you have to subscribe to. Well, and also right. the whole like, I tried to throw myself into the pond. Like, <laughs> you know that's yeah. not going to kill you. You went for a swim. <laughs> and along those lines, do you think 
because a part of her, I think it was a part of her story. She was sick of him. She was sick of both her husband and was, you know, and that's why she wanted them to fight. Was that her story? I think it was the woodcutter story. See, this is also a good, like, it's a good <laughs> tool because you forget, like, who had what detail. Yeah. But, yeah, no. In her story, it was, like, she chased away the bandit or something. Like, he was gone, and she, like, went to untie her husband, and he looked at her with such loathing that she oh, couldn't right. stand it. And, like, that thing, which to me, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I was, like, really, like... Once I realized that that was, like, bullshit, I was like, that's the story you went with. He looked at you with loathing and then left. <laughs> there are, like, like the there are pieces of each story that represents her better. Like, like, that is, there are certain parts of her story that represent her the best, but there's also parts of the woodcutter story. No, actually, the woodcutter story that re- part that represents her the best are the actions, not what the people are saying. Yeah, we have to her. remember, again, like, her own version of the story is her trying to, like, get out of, yeah. like, having to admit that she basically murdered him. Because, like, in her story, she's like, oh, I passed out. And then when I came to, he was totally dead. Like, what the heck? What was I supposed to do? Like, yeah, That was how... going to be my question was, do you think that she killed him? I mean, that's that's always been what I thought, but it doesn't – it's not necessarily – See, it's weird because specific. I don't know, like – I don't know how much we can trust the woodcutter either because he already has established that he lied to the court. And, like, maybe at this point he's like, maybe I'll just make up a good story about it. But, yeah, I feel like, again, since I very much got the feeling at the end that she was kind of, like, the mastermind behind this, I feel like either she killed him or she did get the bandit to kill him. And then, like, because, like, when, okay, so when he's in the court and they pick, like, they have the guy talking about how he captured him, like, he's got arrows in his back and shit. And so I'm curious as to whether, like, she, like, convinced him to kill the husband and then, like, followed him and like shot him with the arrows. I was wondering, are the arrows in his back, or are they just like on scattered on the ground? It looked like there was I a thought, couple like in his shoulder. I thought they were in him too when we first find him on the shore. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but that reminds me. Uh, so you, Tyler, you had mentioned that he was kind of laughing when the guy that captured him uh, said that he got bucked off of his horse, but in actuality, he said it is because he drank bad water. And so to me, I, I, for some reason, when I was watching it this week, I could not stop laughing at the idea that he thinks it's more noble to have, like, uh, the shits than it is to fall off of a horse. (laughs) Uh, Masculinity is so weird. (laughs) I guess you can't ascribe any type of uh, uh, reality or or any reasoning behind it, but I I was, like, really, I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so hard at the idea of him. You know, shitting all over the beach as a more honorable way of, <laughs> of, of writhing than falling off of the horse. <laughs> and also be like, you're so dumb. I was obviously shitting everywhere. Like, could you see it? <laughs> Me fall off the horse. Yeah. It's, I guess I didn't really think about Like, yeah, I guess I didn't really think about that. (laughs) No, I have a question too. So, I mean, it functions as like a fable or a parable also because it has this kind of uplift, like hype, like super uplifting ending out of nowhere. And I was wondering, did you think it was a little too much or like it didn't quite work? Or did you two think it worked well, that ending? Sean, you can go first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I... I think it works, but I do I do think it is a little on the nose, especially with like the fog lifting and it stopping raining and stuff like that. As he walks away with the baby, it was a little um, a little Disney for me, I guess. But at the same time, it's at the end of that type of story, like you said in in the in the written version that it was adapted from, there isn't really anything 
like that to kind of tie it up. And the ending of a movie is always the most difficult aspect. So I, I really don't know what way you could end it that without everyone just feeling like total shit, you know? So it it's good in terms of there being some type of bow, but overall, yeah, it's not super satisfying to me. Uh, yeah, I was just like, I was like really wrapped up in this movie, like trying to like really like comprehend what I was seeing and like what like I was like trying to like understand the message or whatever. And then like the baby started crying and I was like, hold on. It was very respectful of the story. <laughs> I was like, I least. need to just hold, wait a minute. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, it just seemed really out of like nowhere to me. And again, like, I'm, I guess I'm glad that it ends that way, but. I just feel like it was kind of like after such this like long masterfully done like woven intricate story to just be like and then there's a baby <laughs> like it just seemed like not like I guess sloppy is not the word I'm looking for but it just seemed like tossed in now I kind of felt the same way like that it's effective if a bit clunky and an interesting thing is so I read through a lot of stuff, including the Wikipedia page. In the Wikipedia page, it says he actually, that um, Kurosawa actually wanted a darker ending. So that all happens. But then when it goes to the gate, it's supposed to be more overcast, like there's another rain coming or like that there's always another rain on the horizon or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the thing is, in Wikipedia, it's not cited and I could not find that corroborated anywhere else. So I, have no, I, I haven't been able to tell yet if that's actually true. But I do like thinking of it that way, that he has the optimistic twist, but still like almost like a horror movie, uh, like, a, like a horror movie suggestion like that Freddy like Kruger it, bursting the, back the out evil's the coming back. Yeah. I guess like, so yeah, I also, I just took a little issue with the woodcutter being like, I have six kids. What's one more? I'm like, I mean, seven kids is kind of a lot. I was going <laughs> like... to say really underselling the impact a single child can have on your well-being. <laughs> And also, like, I don't know, just after all of that, I was, like, almost expecting him to, like, walk off with a baby and then just, like, murder it or something. Like, I was just, I was just like, is that the end of this He movie? walks off into the sunset and then just drops it. <laughs> yeah, well, because, like, that's kind of, like, probably what the rest of them would have done. Like, the bandit and the samurai and the woman and the commoner. Like, you know, I just, I don't know. I just was, like, I just, like, was, like, holding my breath during the last bit because I was just, like, kind of waiting for the hair to snap, so to speak. <laughs> They hear the baby crying. They're just like, fuck you, baby, and punt it. Just yeah. off into the distance. Maybe not quite like that, but, oh, you yeah. know. I mean, in the, bandit's retelling of that, in the bandit's retelling of that story, he would do that. Like, if he was talking to the court, he'd be like, yeah, I punted that baby. <laughs> yeah. 50 yards. 50 yards. Or I remember, meters. I remember, because I've never punted a baby so far before. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, furthest, the furthest a baby has ever been punted was 40 yards. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's I will say, uh, Seven Samurai is the most fresh in my brain because I just watched it earlier this summer. It's not totally out of line with other Kurosawa endings. Um, it's not spoiling anything in that movie, but it's there's kind of like a, they ride off into the sunset type of ending there. Um, so I, I don't know if it was. I, I guess you are in post World War II Japan, so they've really kind of had it rough the last uh, you know the ten years before that. Uh, before Rashomon's release, so no, maybe I, I don't. Like I, the ending is good. <laughs> yeah, maybe he was like, uh, you know, we'll we'll give some sort of light at the end of the rainbow. I, I don't know. We're at the end of the tunnel. 
Yeah, a lot of the so there have been tons of books and essays and stuff written about it, and something that comes up, but from a lot of those authors is they'll mention the post World War II thing, and they'll say that um, part of Kurosawa's thing was he taught he's presenting how like how messed up man is and all this confusion, desperation, just how like how kind of evil we all are. But they emphasize that he is all about stories of personal hero heroism being his way to inspire people to be better, like these small stories of people doing the right thing even in even when everything else around them is messed up is kind of his way of trying to, you know, lift people's spirits a bit. Like, hey, we might be okay. Yeah, that's my favorite first <laughs> movie, uh, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> that was a joke. Seven Samurai. It's a joke. <laughs> Wait, he didn't direct. <laughs> oh, man. I, actually, I would love to see Kurosawa's Star Wars. I actually hate Star Wars, but I'm pretty sure that Kurosawa would, whatever, like, I'm pretty sure the one that George Lucas plagiarized everything from is probably better. <laughs> Shots fired. I know, getting heavy. Shots in. Fire. We haven't even talked about Forrest Gump yet, so... <laughs> I would say I will not be on that episode. <laughs> I don't I even want to be on that episode. to talk about. <laughs> so, like, Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks... Doing stuff, yeah. Doing stuff. But, yeah, so before we get too far off topic, um, Sean, do you have any closing remarks, thoughts, etc.? On... Um, I-, I had texted you texted this to you guys but the medium speaking uh, telling the story <laughs> oh my god terrifying I, I don't know if it was the state i was in while i was watching it but i went from you know the laughter of of uh, the bandit shitting himself to just <laughs> the, the being petrified at the demon voice coming out of this woman telling the story um I guess yeah i guess that is what maybe gives it a little bit more credence than and the, the way she's story. framed against like that oh. white sky and her, it's just her face, just like screaming into the camera. It's it's really it's it's haunting. I I love it. I like being scared, but it, it really seemed like a lot of kind of the the exorcism esque movies borrowed from that. I feel like because it, it, it's the voice, the like the the pitch modulation, the voice and stuff. It was it was great. It's kind of funny when you think about it too, because like I was saying, like uh, talking about the samurai like lying in his own story or whatever. I'm just like imagining him like in the under like in the underworld like doing this dramatic like flail around bit. <laughs> Look how true and sincere it is. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to like maybe take a little bit of laughter away from it still and not be completely sad and terrified. <laughs> I think I'm gonna think of that next time. <laughs> yeah. I'm scared this time. Just imagine a guy thinking it's like just wait and then I'm gonna flail like this. And they're gonna be so creeped out <laughs> um and then i guess one more thing I, I can leave it with this it's a quote that is never more appropriate than in 2015 uh, and it's from from the film in the end you cannot understand the things men do yeah too real that's a microcosm of the world right now so <laughs> i feel bad because you had such good closing points and mine is just that i was fascinated by the women's eyebrows <laughs> They were amazing. That is like an art project in itself. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, just some dots and like some like drawn-ons, and I'm just like, I clearly need to up my game here. <laughs> There's a whole world of eyebrow that you have not yet explored. Right. Just gotta get a little daring. Yeah. Those are your actual closing thoughts? Yeah, no, I pretty much covered everything that I wanted to talk about earlier. <laughs> okay.
Okay. And like all I have is like the thing I love doing all the research in this movie and just taking down all these thoughts. And the thing that sucks about the podcast, or like any way that you recap a movie is just there's so many things that get left out. Like, well, ideally just, they'll go watch the movie and then like also research it themselves. This is true. Like we could just talk about like the cinematography for 20 minutes or something like that probably. Or uh, I didn't even mention the simplicity of it. There are only three actual sets in the entire movie or how I like in the court that you just got the actors who already spoke. They're just kind of like sitting in the background. Just, like mm-hmm. they're in detention and the teacher's like, okay, now you sit over there. Now you come here and you tell me what happened. I liked that and we'll the, get this all sorted out in the I end. I liked that the judges never actually talked. It was just them being like, what? Yes? <laughs> Did this? I see a sword? Yeah. No, no, I didn't see a sword. It's very, yeah, it harkens really back to that like stage play feel, and that's like I like there are some movies that are like based on plays that like they can't shake that feeling of being a play. Like for instance, if anybody's ever seen um, the HBO miniseries Angels in America, like that's based on a Broadway play. And, like, you can tell. Like, I can feel, like, where the beats are supposed to be, where the scene transitions are supposed to be. And, like, that might just be because I was such a theater nerd or what. But, like, that is always, like, really apparent to me in adaptations of plays. And so it's interesting to see that in a movie that's not – it's based on, like, a a story rather than an actual stage play. And I just thought that that was really cool, which was the point I was trying to make. (laughs) Well, oh, Todd, can I jump in real quick again? No, yeah, absolutely. Just another shout out to the Criterion Blu-ray in the um, in the the booklet that comes with it. There's a a cool essay, uh, and then it also ha- publishes the two stories that the movie is based on. Oh, that's awesome. So, not that Criterion needs any plugging from my dumbass, but <laughs> check out the uh, the Criterion Blu-ray if you can, um, and check out the stories either before or after you watch. It's it's really cool to to compare the two and see how the script came about from, because they're, they're very short. Um, but uh, yeah, sorry. This is a bummer to me because the only criteria in Blu-ray I own is the one for blue is the warmest color. And it's like so bare bones. I feel like compared to every other criterion edition ever. And I don't know why that is. And it's very annoying. Is it because it's a recent release? Maybe that is part of it. And possibly. I also feel like probably none of the people that worked on the movie wanted to ever speak to each other again. <laughs> so that might have something to do with that. But it's also just frustrating because that is a movie that I would love to hear all about. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> <laughs> that cute little tangent there. Go ahead, Tyler. Oh, that, I mean, that was about all I had is just kind of lamenting how there's so much information about everything. And even Criterion can't get all of it. I bet. That's a challenge. Prove me wrong, Criterion. <laughs> Send me a Blu-ray that proves me wrong. I, I want a Blu-ray. Anyway. <laughs> but that, that's, that wraps up our talk of it right now. I guess I didn't actually mention the names of the cinematographer. Uh, that's probably because I pr- can't pronounce it. Miyagawa is his last name. Miyagawa. Kazuo Miyagawa. But, yeah, that is – we. I've, it sounds like we're all in agreement that this is a great movie and probably deserves its spot both in the 250 and just, you know, in our – in our lives. Yeah, I yeah, I definitely again, like I said before, I, w- I wish I could see that like without the like 60 year gap between its initial cultural impact, but even like with that it's easy to see like why it's so important and that is, you know, it's always good when like cuz like there are a lot of classic movies that don't hold up and so I feel like that's the true like if you can watch a movie and be engaged and like question it and think about it and continue to wonder about it afterwards like that's the important marker of like a good film or like an important film 
I look forward to checking out more of his movies as for sure. There yeah. Are seven of them. Again, um, I am ashamed that I've never seen any of them before. It's actually kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, there are 30, I think, total. So you got cool. some good stuff to catch cool, up. Cool, cool. Yeah. We'll catch up to Sean one day. Somehow. <laughs> I, I have not seen all of them. Come on. Why not? No, I see. I was just developing all this respect for you too. <laughs> only three fourths of them. Oh, well, <laughs> well then, well, I've only seen one thirtieth of them. So, <laughs> who's got the lower fraction here? You know. All right, so let's get out of our movie and get into our recommendations. Sean, what recommendation have you brought to us this week? Uh, so I know you guys usually do uh, related recommendations, but um, something that I want the whole world to know about is uh, a film that just hit VOD recently called Queen of Earth. Have you guys heard about yeah. this? Yeah. I really want to see it. <laughs> it's so, so, so amazing. Um, basically, Elizabeth Moth, Moss and Catherine Waterston, who you'll remember from uh, 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 the P.T. Anderson movie last year. What's it called? Inherent Vice. And Hair Vice, yeah. Um, they grew up together, and they haven't seen each other for a long time, so they go to this uh, like house out in the middle of nowhere together, and basically Elizabeth Moss kind of goes nuts, and it's sort of uh, Polanski-ish, kind of 60s repulsion kind of psychological thriller, uh, and it's directed by Alex Ross Perry, and he... Did Listen Up, Philip last year, and he has two other films that I haven't seen yet. But Listen Up, Philip was my favorite movie of last year, and it has amazing actors and amazing cinematography and music. And um, I can't say enough good things about both Alex Ross Perry and Queen of Earth, his new movie. Uh, super, super highly recommended. And like I said, I know it's not exactly related, but um, I just it kind of it kind of is if you think about it, like you know, going crazy. Yeah. And... Hanging out with your friends. And... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kayla. Thank you. Um, yeah, so check out Queen of Earth. It's amazing. Kayla. Cool. Yeah, if it makes you feel better. My recommendation, I always end up having like the weird like out there, like this is vaguely tenuously sort of connected. So my recommendation for this week is actually one of my favorite movies. Um, it's called The Virgin Suicides. It is Sofia Coppola's, I want to say, actual like full-length directorial debut. And it kind of deals with some of those same ideas of, like, people being selfish and, like, wanting to present this, like, idealized version of themselves and wanting to be seen a certain way. And also it deals with people accepting that at face value and going along with and creating this, like, unreal, perfect version of the girls in the movie. So it's... It's really great. It has really great performances from like Kirsten Dunst is in it and uh, Josh Hartnett, who is definitely an interesting character in that movie. But um, it has really good cinematography, really good music. Like I know people like to shit on Sofia Coppola a lot, but I she's honestly one of my favorite directors. So um, I would recommend all of her things, but particularly in this case, this week, The Virgin Suicides. If you're looking for kind of like a, a sort of modern-ish follow-up that deals more with like the feminine side of things as opposed to the masculine side of things and my recommendation is the most related of all nice escalation there but we talked earlier about the Rashomon effect and how it became it is the name for basically any story that has to do with eyewitnesses account conf- accounts conflicting and kind of creating this confusion 
And my recommendation is The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. It's a movie from a couple years ago. It got a little bit of buzz in indie circuits, but it never quite took off. It's uh, th So the way the movie was originally filmed, there was a him segment and a her segment, each their own movie. And they're told from, as you can tell from the name, they are told from the different perspectives. And there aren't a lot of differences, but there are some very telling, subtle differences that shift things certain ways from each person's perspective. Like, obviously, James McAvoy and Chesk Chastain, who star in it, come off a little differently in their own retellings. You know, they're, in their relationship, James McAvoy gets more of the blame in, in just Chastain's version and vice versa. And it's just another less overt version of this. And uh, I think the Weinstein Company released it, and they put it together into like a 90-minute version called Them. Don't watch it that way. I don't like the fusion of them at all. They play much better separately especially Jessica Chastain's version. She is by far the biggest star of that film. And as she is in almost any film she's in, and her segment is the far superior one, I think. But it is just a, it's a fascinating watch. It's not streaming in a lot of places. The only really way, real way you can get it is either on DVD and Blu-ray through various outlets, or you can rent it on Amazon. But I think the Amazon rental and digital purchase are only them and not the separate versions so i guess go to, on this blind recommendation go track down a dvd or blu-ray copy of this movie if you go to a certain video store uh, we have a oh two disc you, version our it's store cool. doesn't because i bought it okay well it. don't go to this one i guess don't why <laughs> would you <sighs> so anyways, anyways fun stat of the week yay Fun okay, so or fun stat, uh, fun trivia of yeah. the week. You have fun stuff. Anyway, so my fun Sometimes trivia of fun. the week is that while filming the movie in the forest, um, there was like a slug infestation or something. So like there were just slugs dropping on people all the time, just slugs everywhere on everything, causing problems, being disgusting because they're slugs. So like it got to the point where like the entire cast and crew would just like slather themselves in salt so that if a slug dropped on them, it would just be like, ah, and like burn off. That's actually what Toshiro Mifune is <laughs> slapping off. In yeah, for, honestly, probably. They're just like, you know what? That fits. Let's keep it. Just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, statistic of the week, as always, related to the IMDb 250 about the movies contained therein and the different things about them. Sometimes they're more depressing. This is more of just kind of a standard one. So we mentioned before about how the list is very... Like, it, while it's very has very specific bursts of, like, older movies in certain eras in it, it's very modern-heavy. mentioned last week how 33% of the movies, a whole third of it, is from later in 2000. The, before the 90s hit, the actual—actually, the, ah, the most represented decade is the 50s, which was led off by this movie, actually, which came out in 1950 and won the awards in 1951 and all that. The 50s are actually the most populous decade— before the modern era, I suppose you could call it. And it has 30, there are 31 movies that were released in the 1950s on the IMDb 250. That's only about 12.4%, but that's a good amount more than any other decade before the 90s hit, which is when we were 
you know, growing up and watching movies and that's using why... the internet to vote on things. Yeah. <laughs> Weird how that works. But I mean, there, there's a reason for that. A lot of Hitchcock, a lot of Kurosawa, a lot of like a lot of very specific classic directors during that time. It's a good time for movies. But yeah, that is my stat this week. Yay. Anyway, Sean, thank you so much for being on. Do you have any parting thoughts or shots? Uh, I love the version suicides. I'll say that. Yes. I think yeah. the music is so good. It's scored by Air. They're, they're, they're awesome. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. That playground. Oh, they have a whole album that's just like the score for that movie. It's really good. Oh, cool. Yeah, it, awesome. they just re-released, I think, um, a vinyl set of it. I got a copy of it for my friend Kara, and it's amazing. <laughs> the artwork is is nuts. It's so good. So, yeah. I just like the, the aesthetic of that movie is so just like gorgeous. And like that's what I think that's where Sofia Coppola really like – excels is like her vision really always comes through it's very soft and feminine whatever movie she does and that's a perspective that is usually severely lacking from like popular acclaimed film yeah there's no male gaze thankfully yeah, yes okay <laughs> yes that's, that's what i'm looking yeah. for <laughs> what about my recommendation sean who is this <laughs> new phone who did <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In this week. We'll be back next week with our friend Kyle, probably talking about train spotting in advance of the classic Danny Boyle 90s movie that uh, in advance of Danny Boyle's jobs coming out. Now, you can find us on various social media and such. At, we are at Let the Right Films In, com, where you can find all our episodes, our stats, our all of our various and sundry things collected. You can email us at ltrfi at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter at ltrfipod. That's also an email. It's ltrfipod at gmail on Twitter. We're not on Facebook yet because reasons. We're working on it. (laughs) I don't know. Get there eventually. Yeah, come back next week to hear about train spotting. Thank you so much, Sean, for being on. We look forward to having you on again next month and have a great day. Yay! And remember, Jurassic World is terrible and always will be. Peace. <laughs> Out. <laughs> Oops. I was just so worried about disappointing Sean. I'm just going to hurl myself into the stuff. No. It's just going to make me so lame. <laughs> but, All yeah. Right. Hello. Uh... <laughs> We're having so much fun. <laughs>